So as I'm getting the glass and turn around, my wife followed me downstairs and she snatched a bottle off the side. And she said to me, rather think you've had enough. Now, this was my third bottle in the last 24 hours. She was probably right. I should have thanked her. What this alcoholic did was took a kitchen knife out and stabbed her three times. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the show. This is Al Levin, the host of The Depression Files. Today I'm very excited. We have on the line Dr. Rob Kelly. Dr. Kelly is a world-renowned addiction specialist and the CEO and founder of Rob Kelly Recovery Group. Dr. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Al. Awesome to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. We, you know, I have interviewed many men around mental illnesses and various topics and never really been able to deeply dive into addiction. Certainly, Quite a few of the men who I've spoken to have spoken of their addictions, but to have somebody with a lived experience and an addiction specialist, I'm really looking forward to our interview. Excellent. So am I. It should be awesome. More information, the better, I think. Absolutely. Uh, so I know, uh, first of all, I wanted just to double check. You said it's okay if, uh, if I call you Rob? Yes, sir. Please do. Okay, awesome. And Rob, I know you have your own kind of history and story regarding mental illness as well as alcoholism. I'm wondering how young were you, and I know this is probably looking in hindsight, when would you say the first uh, evidence, first pieces of mental health challenges may have manifested? Well, I remember taking my first drink at the age of nine. Uh, and wow. in the hindsight, again, looking back, that started off my alcoholism, though I didn't know it then. So I'm on stage with my musical family, so I'm pushed on stage at the age of nine. And uh, I remember playing at a venue. It was in Liverpool, actually, where the Beatles come from. So you were playing, playing, a, playing music at the age of yes. nine. Like I was a bass guitarist. Professionally, you know, it get, sounds like, already. When I get into my music, it will freak you out. And I hope it will freak the listeners out because I've done some crazy things. But at the age of nine, gets on stage. I've been playing for, for a few months. Uh, always a nervous child. And I remember my uncle, after we played the first half, I came off. I was so nervous. There was so many people in there. It was just overwhelming for a nine-year-old. 
But my uncle gave me a, a, a couple of mouthfuls of beer and he said, drink this, it'll make you feel better. And I drank it and oh my goodness, Al, I just found the lottery winning ticket for Willy Wonka's factory. I mean, this was it for me. As soon as I drank it, I thought, oh wow, this, this alcohol stuff is gonna serve me for the rest of my life. And, and that's exactly what it did. I, I used it on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights when we'd go out playing, gigging, and uh, used it all through my teens. I found out when I drunk, drank this alcohol, I could speak to people. I could speak to girls. Yeah. You know, I could all do all this crazy stuff that usually nervous teenagers wouldn't normally do. And that's kind of the story of my life. Right. Alcohol served me a purpose until it didn't. And that was in my late, uh, early 20s, middle 20s. But uh, well, what, how, what can I know you, now, can, can you tell us how you how did you ever get into music playing on stage in bars at age nine? That alone well, because, is pretty unheard of. I know because my auntie and uncle, that was the band. We were a trio okay. and I was always meant to go out playing with them. It's just that I can do two things. Well, I can I can get people well from addiction and I can play musical instruments, any musical instrument I can play. Really? And it's just something that. You know, somebody passed me the bagpipes once in a bar and started laughing, thought they'd make a, a, a fool of me. And within 20 minutes, I could get a tune out of it. And oh it's just been goodness. the story of my life. Yeah. How old were you when you first picked up an instrument? Uh, probably three. When oh. I, maybe uh, maybe two or three when I, when I was sat at the piano with my uh, nanny. And oh my uh, we, yeah, I just started banging out tunes. And it's just when people say to me, I can't, under I can't understand how you can just play something. My automatic reaction is I can't understand you can't because right, I, I, right. I just it's just so simple to me. That is amazing. Yeah. I'm always so jealous. There was a kid across the street when I was growing up, and his dad <laughs> ended up uh, opening up uh, musical instrument stores, all stringed instruments. It's called the Homestead Picking Parlor here in Minneapolis, and uh, his kid he would hear anything on the radio. He'd pick up a guitar and he would play it. And man, yeah. I was jealous. Man, I yeah. I couldn't even tune the instrument. Yeah, it's and crazy. I'm sure that goes without saying that that you had that type of ear and musical talent. Yeah. That yeah. is so cool. So, so you're playing a gig. Sounds like one of your first ones. And your uncle, who is in the band with you at the end of the show, gives you the the beer. Well, we do two sets. We do uh, seven thirty till eight thirty, then nine till ten. So it was the nine till ten. Just before I went on for that, he gave me. A, he said, "Drink this beer just before getting back. Nervous. Just yeah. before and getting I, back on stage. Yeah, and." And like you said, it was just from that point on. So at age nine, and you made it sound like from that point on, you were drinking Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, always yes. playing gigs, always under <clears throat> the guise of your uncle getting you that booze, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Every, every time. Just chilled me out. It was amazing. And were you really tight with that uncle? You must have been. I mean, playing gigs with him yeah. and everything. Well, I remember him. He stayed at our house once when... He's my, he's my mom's brother. Okay. So he went through a divorce when I was about maybe six or seven. And uh, he used to bring his guitar home and he used to practice every night to go out Friday, Saturday and Sunday night. And they'd do new songs every week. So he's practiced. And I was just intrigued when he brought the guitar around. And uh, he actually brought brought a bass and, and, and said, hey, I'm going to teach you how to play this. And he would show me some riff and then. A couple of days later, when he remembered, he go, oh, come on, Robert, let's have a look what you can do. And and I could do the riff and then 10 other riffs. And he was just absolutely amazed at my talent. Um, but I just, I don't know. It was just because it's just natural to me. It really is natural. Yeah, that is so cool. Do you look back? Are you 
still tight with that same uncle and is he still around? I'm not, unfortunately. I mean, I've seen him since, but there was an incident where I asked him for help and the, all of the family told him not to help uh, when I was, you know, suffering from my alcoholism badly. So he kind of estranged since then, but okay. uh, he's still alive. He's still in, in England. Right. Living a great life. Because I was going to ask if you have any animosity against him being the one who brought liquor your way and, you know, age nine, so impressionable and you're playing incredible music and he tells you this will help mellow you out. Like, do you, do you hold anything against him for having created what you have just said was the start of your alcoholism? No, I mean, I would have found it sooner or later, probably sooner than later. But yeah, I, I was always destined. You see, the alcoholic brain is what I have. It's a self-sabotaging brain. I'm born with this. You can trace alcoholism back in your family generations. Not so much drug addiction, but alcoholism you can trace back. So I had the addicted alcoholic brain. So sooner or later, as soon as I found it, and, and I would have found it um, because of my childhood trauma, then, you know, it's just been a matter of time. So no, I, not at all. Right. Not at all. So people do talk about like an addictive personality. That's a term that gets thrown around that I hear a lot. And would you say that there's truth to that then? It sounds like you're kind of meant saying that in a way, like it goes back from family to family. I mean, is somebody who's likely to become addicted to alcohol also oftentimes easily addicted to other things such as maybe tobacco or sex or gambling. Yes, definitely. hundred percent. Especially when they're trying to stop alcohol, they'll take something else up. That's just an addictive. Everybody has an addiction. Everybody has an addiction and everybody knows an alcoholic. And if you don't know an alcoholic, then it's probably you. Um, so that's just the way it is. You know I mean? It, it's, it's such a misunderstood disease. Alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. This is why we haven't got proper figures. So you hear people like, oh, one in every four people, you know, has a drink problem. No, no, no. Probably one in two right. have a drink problem or abuse alcohol or drugs. That's just the way it is. But, you know, a person dies from a car crash because he's, he's an alcoholic and drinking every night. It goes down as a car crash. Right. He sets fire to his own apartment because he's drunk out of his head and he can't control his liquor, goes down as a fire. Yeah. Dries of cirrhosis because he's drinking himself to death, goes down as liver failure. It's just, right. you know, it's crazy. Yeah. I unfortunately had a really close friend who died of alcoholism. And uh, it shocks me because whenever I share the story, I always say it was like a year ago. And I just looked it up before this show. His name was Dave Godfrey, really close friend of mine. Brilliant, brilliant, smart dude who worked in public policy for getting health care for the underprivileged. And he uh, drank himself to death. And it was actually October 11th. I just looked it up. He died in 2017. That was my first experience dealing with somebody with alcoholism. And for a long time, I didn't even know he was living with it. Um, and that was so challenging for me, yeah. even though I advocate around mental health and so forth, man, like one of the big things I remember about him with his alcoholism was just a lot of lies and the yeah. lies seemed so normal and typical. Yeah. And can you yeah. speak to that? I mean, is that pretty common that alcoholics are often lying to people when they miss events or, or they're skipping things? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons we do that. First of all, we're always trying to cover our tracks. 
Right. So that's really hard, you know, and you're trying to think what you've done right, what you've done wrong. Now, here's the other thing as well with alcoholics and, and the lies is we are never comfortable in our own skin. So we're always telling lies to cover who we are and what we're about. And it's just it just becomes par for the course. I mean, it's just alcoholics tell lies that you like you will drink water. Yeah. I mean, it's just something you do every day. You don't think about anything. It's OK. Right. And that's the way it's, I remember being successful driving outside of a club in Manchester. Uh, first of all, I'm driving around the block for about 15 times before the spot outside the club comes vacant. Then I'm parking my Bentley outside. I mean, I'm inside and all the girls obviously are swarming around. And I, I was I was in a, uh, owned a telecom company. But when they came to me and they said, oh, is that your car outside? You know, it's a nice car. What do you do for a living? I was always a soccer player, a rocket scientist. <laughs> Uh, you know, an, an actor. I was all something glamorous because if you only found out who I really was, right. then you wouldn't like me. So the minute I stopped lying was 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 the time that you'd probably find out who I was. Right. And I know you wasn't going to like that person. So that's why we lie so much. Yes. It's crazy. So when you say not uh, not happy with the skin you're in, really, you're talking about your personality and who you are as a person, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, another trait of the alcoholic is... We're never going to be tall enough, blonde enough, thin right. enough, or rich enough. And yeah. it's just the way it is. You know, it's just them traits that we're always striving for success because we never fit in and we never feel good enough. And I still suffer from the imposter syndrome. Right. You know, when I went to Oxford University, I came from the, 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 the uh, council estates. I came from the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the caravans and the trailers and the, the projects. That's where I come from. And it's only with my job at Abbey Road, I was a bass player, Abbey Road, session bass player, that I got myself through college. Otherwise, there's no way could we have afforded to go to a college like that. But I was always feel like an imposter, and I still do today sometimes. Yeah. So you got through on your music? I did. I got through on my music. I was oh my being paid $1,000 an hour back in 1979 to oh 1986. Goodness. Yeah. which wow. is. Uh, but I was playing with Elton John, David Bowie, Queen, all them guys. Whoa. So, and that's not yeah, the imposter you're talking about. That was real. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> that now, here's another crazy thing, Al. When you stick a guitar on my neck, that's me. Right. And and I 20 odd years I've been doing podcasts, TV interviews. I must have done a million interviews. And that's just this is an exclusive. When I stick a guitar on my neck, I'm me. Yeah, I've just realized that when you said that, that it's not the imposter when I do that. Right. It's actually it's actually Robert Kelly that the guy I used to know. That's the guy that. Wow. That's that's kind of blow my mind. That. Yeah. Is is it the Robert Kelly who was drinking? Or is it, you know, Robert Kelly, the musician? Yeah, I think. Yeah, that there's definitely a couple of uh, personalities in there, without a doubt. Yeah. Definitely a couple of personalities. Right. It's one of the reasons why I changed my name to. R-O-B-B, uh, rather than R-O-B or Robert, is yeah. because the the Robert was born a musician, and that's what all my family call me. The Rob that went and ended up homeless, living on the streets, is not the same Rob with two Bs today. Now, that might sound comical to some people, but it means a great deal to me that I'm not that person anymore. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think anybody would have a right to believe – well, I can't say that I don't have a right – but I, it would surprise me if somebody thinks that's comical. I mean, that's that's how you're describing you. That's that's your reality, um, yeah. and I can appreciate that. So tell us a bit about how mental health fits in here, because I know you. I read a little bit about you 
believing that you had some, I think it was anxiety and or depression, even as a kid. Yeah, well, uh, alcoholism uh, is is a uh, is byproduct of um, the depression. You right. know, there's always depression. There's always bipolar, as they call it today. Back in the day, it was clinical depression. Uh, we used to call it. So yeah, I suffered from depression. I suffered from uh, suicidal thoughts most of my life. Even as a youngster. I, yes, even even as a youngster, I I I just when you stuck that guitar around my neck, I was home. Yeah. But I only did that three hours a week. So right. or four hours a week. <clears throat> so for the rest of the week, I had to try and battle to be me. And uh, I, I didn't like me. I didn't love me. I didn't want to be me. You know, I wasn't good enough to be me. And that was always the problem growing up. And were um, there people sending you that message that you were not a good kid or not good enough? Uh, yes. Yes, definitely. Uh-huh. And, and mostly because parents didn't really take much notice um, but I wasn't great at school. I was more interested in music and, and acting and plays and, and football, you know, m- rather than academic stuff that I should have been doing. But, you know, I, w- I was supposed to. This is what my map was. My map was l- actually mapped out my life. Uh, I was supposed to grow up, uh, finish school at an early age, get a job like my dad at the gas board, have two kids, go down the pub every Friday and Saturday night get drunk on a Sunday afternoon and start work Monday. That was my life planned out. I was expected to do that. And I I didn't want to do it. Right. I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And you knew that from a young age, that that was what you were destined to do. Yes. Right. Yes. Wow. And when you say you had depression at a young age, how how did that manifest as a kid? Were you going to school? Um, Did you have friends? I didn't have a lot of friends, unfortunately, because my parents changed school at the wrong time. Okay. So I went coming out of normal school or, or uh, middle school, uh, going into high school. We, we changed. So the high school I'm supposed to go to with all my friends was then changed around at the last minute. So I moved, relocated and I went to school with people I had no idea. I hated school. Right. I absolutely hated it because, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't, you know, good enough. Uh-huh. I just didn't fit in at all. And you mentioned putting the guitar around your neck and it was only a few hours a week. Like I could imagine as a nine year old, 10 year old, like that might become your salvation and, and put it in 20 hours a week, just at home practicing and yes. so forth. Did you dive into your music to, to help you out with the depression at all? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it, it did help. Yeah. It really did help because when I was in my music, uh, I felt safe. Now, what happened with me growing up as a teenager is because we were rehearsing every every night to create these new songs for the weekend because there's only a certain amount of clubs in Manchester. So we'd play venues every month. You know, I would have to learn new songs. So all through my teens, uh, I'd be in the bedroom learning new songs. I never listened to the radio very rarely. I only discovered, and I'm from Manchester, I only discovered Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, you know, all these guys about five years ago when I sat down again and got back into my music really? because I, I, yeah, I mean, people got oh, Pink Floyd, they're amazing. I remember having lunch with the bass player for, for Roger Waters from Pink Floyd and not even knowing who he is. It was a <laughs> pub in East Sheen in London. And there's a bunch of us sat there. This is a funny story. Al. There's a bunch of us sat there uh, and I'm on my own. I stumbles in this pub on my own and uh, I'm in London for business and there's like 20 guys around the table so we're all, I went over and this guy said, come on over here, buddy, you know, sit down and we're drinking and laughing. And one by one, they all started to disappear because it's getting like five or six o'clock. And it was left with me and this guy. And this guy's like, what'd you do? I said, you know, I'm doing this, I do that. I'm at college, but I'm also a bass player. And he's like, oh, you're a bass player. And I said, yeah, I'm the best bass player in the world. You know, I can play anything. I'm amazing. 
And I'm spouting off to this guy, what a great <laughs> bass player I am. And after he'd finished drinking, he said, do you want to come back to the house and continue drinking? I'm like, hell yeah. He said, my wife's away. So we, we went back to his house. We walked from the bar. It must have been about three minutes. And we stood in front of these iron gates, which was looked like a castle. So he opened the, the electric gates. We walked in and he opened his front door and the hallway was lined with gold records. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, oh, my God, what's your name? And he said, it's Roger. And I said, Roger who? He said, Roger Waters. I'm like, well, from where? And he said, from Pink Floyd. And I said, oh, I think I've heard of that band, Pink Floyd. <laughs> What an idiot I was. I felt such an idiot because I didn't know who he was. But he turned out to be an amazing guy. Spent a lot of time with him. My kids eventually played with his kids. And, you know, we we had a great time together. But, yeah. Oh, my God. That is amazing. I know. know. And you just met him just happenstance as you walk into a bar and meet a group of folks there who invited you over to drink. I know. That is wild. And did you actually sit down and get to play with him, too? Uh. I, I never played with them, to be honest. We never played with Roger. Uh, most of the time was outside the house when we met up. Uh-huh. We didn't meet a great deal. Uh, yeah. My wife and his wife met quite often. And there was a singer as well. I can't remember what her name was, but she did a famous song on the album, just her vocals. It was crazy. But they, they all used to meet up. But no, I never, I never really played bass with him or guitar with him. That is so cool. What a great story. And, and how did you get these other gigs with these other well-known folks? Elton John? <clears throat> Well, I, I was, you've got to remember, I've got the alcoholic brain, which means I'm always striving for the next best thing. Right. Very clever brain. So I got a job when I was about uh, 12, 13, a local studio, uh, recording studio, making jingles for TV and radio uh, commercials. And I, I applied for a job at Strawberry Studios in Stockport, which is owned by 10CC. I'm not sure whether they had a lot of fame over here, but a few people know them. So I was playing there. And then... About six months into that, seven months maybe, um, somebody sent me a music music maker or melody maker magazine, and it had a a, a job for a bass player at Abbey Road. Now, you've got to remember that I'm only 16 at the time, and I'm going up against these seasoned bass players, but I'm an alcoholic. I don't care. I'm going to go in there. Now, I'm strapping a bass around my head 24 hours a day when other kids are growing up, so I know I'm pretty good at what I do. I can sight read. So I I applied for it, and he got a first uh, audition, went down there, and I'm stood outside Abbey Road, and used to be a newsagent on the corner that sold beer, and I looked at Abbey Road, and I looked at the newsagent, and I walked in and thought, if I'm going for this audition, I'm going to have a beer. So I drank a beer before I went in, did the audition, went home, waited for the letter, got a second audition. That's cool. Went back, had two beers for my second audition. This is how my mind works. I had seven auditions for that job. The last audition was seven beers. I went in, I played. I don't remember playing. I was that wasted. I come back home and, oh, my God, about a week later, I got a letter say I got the position. Well, a couple of things. First of all, that confirmed that drinking alcohol made me famous and made me amazing. Oh, so I was that just going to say that. Like right? that, that has to be such a negative incentive to to approve, have yourself right. approve of booze. Like, yes, this is yeah. helping me. This liquor is helping yeah. me be successful and getting me into great places. I'm going to keep drinking. The more I drink, the better I do. Seven beers in on my seventh interview, and I nail cool. it. Cool. Got it. Yeah. At age so 16. Drinks, great stuff happens. That's what oh happened. So I started playing there, and I was pretty good. And uh, one day, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got, now I've got an apartment in uh, in London, in East Sheen, 
just around the corner. Uh, and uh, I get a call one night, and this was the call. And if I can remember, I'm going to say it verbatim. Hey, Rob, um, David Bowie has asked if you would come in and do six or seven hours with him in the studio. Is uh, willing to pay you $1,000 an hour. And I'm like trying to keep cool, you know, on the end of the phone, trying to keep it together. I'm like, well, what, what time is he talking about? Well, he's going to go in at 1 a.m. and he's going to come out about 5 or 6 a.m. But he's, he's got it booked all day. And I'm like, um, yeah, okay, I think I can manage. Just let me check I've got nothing going on. And, and I put the phone, I'm looking at my girlfriend going, David Bowie. He's going, who? David Bowie. So I got back on and said, hey, I can make it. I'm, I'm on my way down. So that started a bit of a trend oh of, of me being... Yeah, so then I got a call from uh, Freddie, uh, Freddie Mercury's manager, and then Elton John, uh, his guitarist, called me up. But I remember, I remember doing a session with Elton John one day, and uh, well, the night, and it was a terrible night. It was raining and pouring and thundering and lightning. And about four hours in, Elton said, "This is not going to work. You know, it's just it's too much noise, despite the soundproofing." So we called it a day. We called it a wrap, and he said, "Let's go back to the hotel." So he goes around to the Savoy Hotel, one of the most exclusive hotels in the world. He goes up to the penthouse suite. It's pouring with rain. It's a horrible night. There's all sorts of paraphernalia and alcohol available. There's a couple of girls there. There's me, a couple of station bass player, his lead guitarist, Elton John, and his manager. And we're all in this room, and we're, we're getting stuck into the alcohol. All of a sudden, I hear shouting from the other room. And I'm like, what's that? And I walked in, and I noticed it was Elton, Elton on the phone. And I thought, what's he doing? Who's he screaming at? So I walked in the room. He's only on the phone to the receptionist telling her that if she didn't stop the wind and the rain immediately, he would never book into that hotel again. <laughs> what a crazy oh man. Yeah. Goodness. Wow. I know. True that story. Is, that is wild. So I was going going to ask if if these famous dudes knew when when you were playing that you were probably loaded uh you know drinking a ton but many of them probably were as well is that safe to say I never saw a sober guy in there to be honest with you right right yeah so he kind of that's the other piece right about being in a band it seems like you're always surrounded you're playing at bars right people are drinking and for somebody who has limited control around their liquor intake, that's just, I would imagine, just a terrible setting to to be so deeply embedded in. Yeah, definitely. Just, definitely. Makes, it, just makes it all the more challenging. So you, you are playing music all the way through, all the way up through Oxford. You get in, how, first of all, how the hell do you get in? You're dealing with depression. You're dealing with some mental health issues. You're drinking up a storm for the most part, at least on weekends, maybe even more. I, I don't know. And and how do you how do you get into Oxford? You're gonna love this. So I have the alcoholic brain. I'm gonna keep saying that because <laughs> yeah. it's really important that you've got this intriguing brain that's so clever. Right. So a friend of mine came to me one day, and I'm about sixteen or something, <clears throat> and uh, him and his dad belong to a local Freemason lodge. And uh, in England, it's very exclusive. It's not like in America where it's on windows. I mean, it's, you've got to really, you've got to be invited. It's very secretive. Nobody talks about it. But apparently this lodge had been after a keyboard player, an organist, for so long that he came up because his he, he dad said, look, Gastrov, if he wants to join the Freemasons, it's about a year before he should, two years before he should, but we need an organist. We've got a big dude coming up. So I said yes, knowing quite well that the Freemasons 
got into a lot of stuff and were given a lot of leeway when it comes to getting jobs and getting into universities and stuff. So I said, yeah. So I was automatically promoted to be an organist, which is like six tiers before you should even be allowed in the room. <laughs> so I was doing that. So through them, contacts got me um, a uh, interview at Oxford University for Green's College. So I went to Green's College for the first year, which is to become an MD, a doctor. And then they threw me out for being drunk every day. And the, the only option I had was to walk away being disgraced or to enter their Trinity College, which was their PhD uh, for psychology uh, course. So I did the PhD instead of the MD. Okay. Okay. Wow. So you got thrown out of one college based because of the booze. Yeah. Yeah. Showing up to class drunk or was it for getting in trouble partying or how did that evolve? All of the above, really? Your Honor. All of the above, yeah. And and then when I left Oxford, my first job was a police officer because in the lodge, everybody was a police officer in the Freemasons Lodge. So I joined the police, lasted nine months. They fired me for being drunk on the job. Oh, no. So now so now there's kind of a habit going on. There's like a format going on Yeah. You know, of, of this, keep calling me an alcoholic. Because that's what Sergeant was... Pittman called me in. He's like, listen, Rob, you, I know you're drunk. I want, I want your warrant card and uh, I don't want you to drive home. You're a disgrace to your family. You're a disgrace to the community. And you have to look at yourself because you're an alcoholic. So I'm, I'm walking home because he won't let me drive. I was that drunk. This was when myself, you were a police officer. Right? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm walking home in my uniform. I'm walking home thinking, he just called me an alcoholic. That's what I was annoyed at. Not that I just lost my job or my reputation or my family's going to go crazy. Right. But it was a case of he called me an alcoholic and I couldn't get over that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think everybody knows before I do. Everybody knew before I, I did that that's the problem. Yeah. And the traits were there, which I, I never thought I had a problem. I still didn't I think I had a problem. We'll go into it shortly. When I was on the streets, I didn't think I had a problem. I just thought I was going through some bad luck. Right. That's all it was. But yeah, I mean, there was, there was, there was a pattern. Everybody could see the pattern uh, except me. But again, after they got fired, I went home. And within three or four weeks, I joined a company that were building towers for the Army and Navy telecommunications. So I decided that I, I could do that. So we, I, I, started, I joined his company and, you know, they were building and, and planning out and mapping out. And then all of a sudden, three months in with the alcoholic brain, thought I could do this myself. So I took a couple of contracts, a couple of uh, people I'd met, and I started a business up with about £25 in my account. Wow. We opened a little office, couldn't even pay the first month's rent when right. we started. So they got the first one, the rent free, and we could start pick up the second. Within nine or ten months, we was doing over a million dollars. Oh my god! The alcoholic brain again. Yeah. Say more what, exactly what you mean when you say the alcoholic brain, so our listeners can understand. I mean, you mention it every time. There, like, the correlation I'm making is every time you mention the alcoholic brain, it has to do with like drive and passion. Yes. yes. And you know, getting things done, kind of. Yeah. In a real positive way. Yeah. And, and, and once we conquer something, we move on to something else. We don't stay in, we don't stay conquering something for long. Yeah. That, that's the bad part of it is we're always looking. The alcoholic brain, uh, we're born with self-sabotaging neural pathways. So we tend to build things up, then knock them down, whether it be relationships or, or jobs or anything like that. So we're always looking for the next best thing, the next, you know, whatever. I mean, I remember coming to America and uh, I mean, this is like 13 years ago. So we're 27, 30 years into being sober. And I said to my, my current wife, you know something? 
let's open a practice. So we did. And if I just get like $50,000 in my personal checking account, I would be happy. I'd have no more worries. I'd just chill out. When we got 50 grand, I said, look, it kind of needs to be 100, really. Because a hundred grand, like a hundred thousand dollars, if you've got that in your checking account, then you, you know you know you're safe and you're not going to go back to homeless. When I got the hundred, it was two hundred. Then it was three hundred. Right. I have over seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in my checking account, not in my savings, in my checking account. Still thinking that I can go broke tomorrow. Yeah. That's my mind. And that it's never, never enough. Never, never enough. Never, never, never enough. Yeah. So when you were a cop, when you were a police officer, you ended up showing up at work drinking. I mean, were you drinking from morning to night those days? Yes. I'd started drinking every single day. Essentially every day. Yeah. I uh, remember, I remember uh, talking to somebody, interviewing another, another guy. I wish I remember which guest I've had a lot now, but he said he showed up at an AA meeting and he was thinking like, he even said to the group, like, I don't really think I have a problem. You know, I, I never drink before like 9 a.m. And he was totally serious. <laughs> and everybody looked at him kind of right. like, uh, right. okay. It's crazy. And it, it really is crazy. And, you know, that's one of the what's one of the reasons why I do what I do today is because of this of the suffering I went through and, and the lessons I had to learn. Uh, I don't want other people to go down that route. So when, when I talked about alcoholism when I was young, people didn't know what I was talking about. The medical fraternity is still baffled. So I have evidence-based research for the last 27 years of me delving into the brain because I'll tell you something now, guys. Alcohol has got very little to do with alcoholism and drug addiction has got very little to do with, you know, drugs. Like it's, it's crazy. It's just a symptom. You know, we have to get down to the causes and conditions of why I'm like this. And there was nobody I could talk to because it's still a, a dirty disease. You're trying to hide it away yeah. and nobody likes to admit they've got it. I mean, if I had cancer, everyone would feel sorry for me. But because he had alcoholism, I was weak. Yeah, I was a disgrace to the family. It's interesting. Just stop drinking, Rob. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's similar with other mental illnesses too, right? A lot of times we we don't want to tell people we're embarrassed of it, ashamed of it try to keep it a secret and it's not really seen as similar as like you said having cancer or lung disease or a heart disease right where you would say you know I'm at home I'm dealing with heart disease and everybody feels sorry for you and everything but if it's yep. a mental illness it's typically unsaid <clears throat> yep so you talked about being a cop you talked about then having another gig how and when did you become homeless and in the streets Oh, that was that was another. I don't know how many years on, but I was. Um, this I is after to get your police officer days. Yes, okay. after the police during my telecom days, I decided to get married. Met a girl, got married, and then she kept saying, "You know, drinking a bit too much." But I was earning a lot of money. I was earning a lot of money. We had the big house on the hill, and we had the Porsches and the Bentleys and the Range Rovers. And, and would all that, that so always I, be your excuse? Like I'm fine. Yes. Look at all the money I've got. I've got. Car 100%. How can you say I have a problem? Hundred yeah. percent, it yeah. masked my alcoholism. Right. Uh, so, so then we decided to have the first child. Well, I said to my wife, if we're going to have a child, then I'm done drinking. You know, I, I just can't carry on. So, uh, we got pregnant, and and the day that she was born, we went to the hospital, and my first was born, and uh, I held her in my arms and gave her back to mom, and I looked her straight in the eye and said, "That's the last time I'm, I'm ever going to get drunk. I'm done with alcohol." Well, I got to tell you, that was the worst four hours of my life. 
because that's all I lasted was four hours. Oh and I was drunk again. So, you know, same went on, you know, thing is, should be, should be drinking this much. Now I'm drinking like real hard liquor for 24 hours a day. And your wife like, at the time up. knew? Well, she knew. She was yeah. a bit scared about it. But she, again, and you know, I'm driving her home in a brand new Range Rover. Right. You know, so what, what are you going to say? You know, I'm providing. When I stop providing, then you can nag at me. Yeah. So we got pregnant again. Well, Al, this was it. This was it. Now we're a proper family. Right. We have two two kids. So when my child was second child was born, I took two Bibles to the to the uh, hospital, and when she was born, I held her in my hand, I gave her back to mom. I got two Bibles on, and I put my hand on each Bible, and I said, "I swear to God and to you that I'll never drink another drop of alcohol again." It was the worst six hours of my life because oh after six hours I was drunk somewhere, and it just went on from there. Yeah. Now in that house, I fell downstairs on my baby. Uh, I remember coming downstairs one morning. Uh, early hours of the morning, searching for my vodka because I had a banging headache going into DTs. And I get to the kitchen, I find the bottle. Now, this is how my head works. I find the bottle, it's half full, so I'm really sort of happy now. So I'll put it on the side of the counter for a second while I turn around and get a crystal glass because, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm drinking out of crystal glasses here, very expensive right. crystal glasses. So as I'm getting the glass and turn around, my wife followed me downstairs and she snatched the bottle off the side. And she said to me, and I quote, Rob, I think you've had enough. Now, this was my third bottle in the last 24 hours. She was probably right. I should have wow. thanked her. Yeah. I should have gone back to bed. And I should have said, thank you, Mrs. Kelly. See you in two, three hours when I get up for work. What this alcoholic did was took a kitchen knife out and stabbed her three times. Wow. As she hit the floor, I called the ambulance. I waited to hear the ambulance when it was arriving. And I took off to the airport and disappeared, disappeared to Spain this for three was months. Your, your wife, who you stabbed... Times yes. Because yes. Because you were angry at her for taking your booze. Yes. And then you just fled. You said yes. you called 911? Yeah, you... I called 911 yeah. for an ambulance. And then yeah. when I heard it, you know, yeah. next road coming, I knew she was kind off. of safe. I didn't, I didn't think she died. They weren't that strong, but she lost a lot of blood. Yeah. But Holy the only gosh. reason I come back to England is because she promised that uh, she won't press charges. So I came back home. When I got back home, she You were gone home. three months, did you say? Three months, yeah. Three months. Where did you go to? Spain. I had a villa in Spain. Okay. So and I went you had there, money at the three. time, so you were doing yeah. fine, and you could find a decent place and survive yeah. there for a few months. Essentially a three-month holiday? Yep, just drinking. drunk every day. Yeah. yeah, just, you know. Right. And then when I came home, she had all her bags packed, and she said to me, she took, got all of the kids, and she says, uh, I'm leaving you. And because I love you to bits and I love you to the day I die, but you're not going to kill our children. So she left with them. This was on a Tuesday. When she left, I got hold of my attorney and said, hey, I pay you a lot of money as I'm a retainer. You know, you've got 24 hours to get my kids back. Otherwise, I'm going to use another attorney for my business. So true to form, 24 hours later or ish, she knocked on the door. He'd gone to court and he had my two kids with him. So I paid him a $25,000 check for getting them back. Wow. And I took him in the in the front room. Now, this is very important. I took him in the front room and I sat him in front of the TV. We just got a new, brand new, big TV. And I went in the kitchen, Al, and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if we just have one beer to celebrate getting my kids back? And I remember opening the first beer. That noise of that first beer. Yeah. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down, they came in, there was vodka bottles strewn all over the floor, empty ones. I'd been in a blackout for three days. The children not been changed, diapers or nappies or fed. Oh. They was almost starving to death. The police came in and kicked me in the head to wake me up. 
and he served me with papers that said unfit father. I stumbled to my feet and they were taking my kids out. My, 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 my ex-wife was, was waiting at the door with her mother and the child people and the child, uh, you know, attorneys. And, uh, they, they took my kids off me and my eldest one, who was three, says three things to me. He said, daddy, daddy, please don't go. And then they, they took him down the path and she's holding mommy's hand and she turned around and she says, daddy, daddy, please get better. I'm crying. They're crying. The, the police are crying. I can't understand that. The police are crying. And then they get to the gate at the end of the driveway. And she opens the gate. And she turned around and she said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. Wow. And I couldn't do it. I went back into the house. I opened another beer. And around six months after that, I'd lost my kids, lost my wife, my houses, my cars, my money, my holiday home. Family wouldn't speak to me. Mom threw me out. Friends threw me out. Acquaintances threw me out. And he ended up on the streets. You, uh, and I was homeless. You lost all that through the divorce to your wife? Yes, I lost everything yeah. completely. Right. My business closed down. They repossessed the cars. The house was uh, foreclosed on. And uh, I remember sat on the streets about two weeks in thinking, where did that all just go wrong? Wow. Because so I didn't are have you a saying, problem. Are you saying that was about a two-week process from when, when they walked out the door till you became homeless? No, it was a six-month process. About okay. six months before everything was gone. Yeah. But was, did you kind of see it coming, or was no. it just like one day all of a sudden the house is gone, you're being booted out, and you had nowhere to go? Yeah, I, I was drunk every day, so I didn't see it coming. Yeah. So when the when the house, the keys were given over, uh, I went to my mom's, and after about two days of drinking at my mom's house, she was horrified with my behavior and uh, my my alcoholism how rife it had got and she, and she, she threw me out my dad it's funny because my dad my dad came up to the bedroom and he said son this is the early hours of the morning he said son you've got to go because i'm drinking there's no drinking in the house that's what she said right and i'm drunk on these these drinks and he come and he says son you've got to go and he marched me downstairs and he opened the door and he gave me a little bag with some clothes in and he gave me 20 pounds and he closed the door I hated that man for that. I hated that man. It was pouring down with rain. I slept in a bus shelter that night. Uh, and, and about a week after, I was on the streets. But many, many years later, when me and my mom uh, were sat down talking one night, and my dad had gone out for a drink, and we got talking. He said, hey, remember, remember that, that time my dad threw me out, mom? And she said, yeah. yeah. I said, can I tell you the truth, mom? I've never, never really forgiven him for that. And this is what she said to me. She says, that was very hard for you, Dad. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. He said, in 54 years of me being married to your father, that's the only time I've ever seen him cry. Wow. And I thought, oh, my God. How much courage did that take? Because that saved my life. Because yeah. I would have drank myself to death. Right. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was sad. So you did was eventually sad. forgive him. I did, and, and I made beautiful amends to him only about two years ago okay. when we went back to England, and uh, my mum had passed on. My mum had died, okay. and uh, my dad has now suffered a stroke. He's not really well, but in, back in two two years ago, he was fine. Yeah. And I sat him down, and I said, I just said, Dad, I want to apologize. I'm so sorry for what happened. And in his usual way, the way dads do, he said, oh, don't worry, son, it's okay. And I said, no, dad, it's not. Yeah. It's not okay. That's and awesome. We had, 
Yeah. It's awesome that you were able to, to do that while he's still yeah. around, you know. Unfortunately, yeah. your mom wasn't around to see it. And I'm sorry to hear about your dad's stroke, but, man, that's powerful. And I'm sure that meant the world to your dad, even though your dad just kind of shrugged it off. Like you yeah. said, most dads would. Man, what a story. So, yeah. I mean, I thought I read and was prepared for this interview. I, I had no idea about the, the stabbing of your wife. And I, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate your courage in sharing that story. You know, people tell me when I talk about my major bouts of depression that it's such courage and, and I don't always see it that way. But, man, you have some stuff that you've been through that was really, really tough. And I know you're saving lives by talking about it. And hopefully people, anybody who's listening to this who's about to grab a bottle is thinking twice after having heard that story. Like, Yeah, I hope so. I, I really hope so, because recovery today is a billion times better than when I was drinking, because that's what I finally got. I had a spiritual awakening on the streets so after being on the streets. This, this might be a tough question to, to answer. How, how do you, like, I would imagine there's a lot of shame after knowing, like, you literally stabbed your wife three times because she took a bottle away from you. And how do you make amends to yourself? for that situation and how are you able to speak about it today? Well, I work a 12 step program and it really helped me for yeah. forgiving myself, you know, and, right. and going for the process. And if I hadn't done that, I would have committed suicide by now. I tried to commit suicide six or seven times on the streets and on two occasions I succeeded, my heart stopped and they brought me back to life. You know, two ambulance crews yeah. brought me back to life on two occasions. And I was very, I was very pissed at them guys for doing that. But when I look back now, it's like, I was kept alive for something, and, and that something is what I do today. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and I think it's incredible. And, and like, I don't, uh, you know, when I ask that question, I don't, I am certainly not insinuating at all that you should feel shame. In fact, I strongly believe that it is an illness, and you were sick at the time, and that is how it manifested, and you were doing things out of your control. And uh, I think the same thing happens sometimes uh, when people are sick with a mental illness, too. It is. It's, it's exactly the same thing. My brain's telling me to do something, and I can't fight against that. And that's why in 1997, the World Health Organization classed alcoholism as a brain disease. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's still, it's still being hidden away. And one of my things today is to bring it out of the closet. You know, we work with alcoholics, addicts, and their families because it's a family illness. And, For you know, we're sure. trying to take away the stigma. It's like I've worked with some of the biggest pops, movie stars, rock stars in the world, household names, who after I got them well from my program uh, wouldn't come out and, and openly say it, even though they were rumors. And I just begged them to do that, to, to stop the stigma. And they wouldn't do it because they know their careers would be over yeah. if they came out because it's a mental illness is what it is. People right. are coming away from alcoholism. Now I'm calling it a mental illness. Yeah. which is more of a worse term. We call it a mental, mental injury. Okay. We don't call it a mental illness because you can get over it and you can yeah. get your life back. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, you said you were in the streets, you had a spiritual awakening, and I'm wondering how you were able to turn this around after living on the streets, trying to take your own life, yet obviously you managed to turn this around. How did that all come about? Drop down to my hands and knees 2.30 in the morning. It was a Sunday night, Monday morning. It was pouring down with rain. Uh, I had no shoes on my feet. Somebody stole them the night before when I was in a drunken stupor. 
it was in the back ends of a uh, back street of Manchester, cobbled street. And I dropped down to my hands and knees and I was done. I was sobbing from my stomach, like an achy cry. Remember the rain hitting the back of my head, dropping down to my face and dropping to the floor, mixing with my tears and hitting the cobbled stones. And I looked up to the sky and I said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And about 30 seconds later, a guy walked around the corner with a Bible in his hand, a little Bible, and missed his last bus home from a Bible study. He'd been walking for two hours, and he bumped into me on the back streets, and he said, do you want help? And I said, yeah. And right there is where my journey started. Oh, my God. Like, literally with that person? With that person, yeah. He took me back to his house, and he said, "I'm I'm an alcoholic myself. I've been sober for 20 years, and he took me to meetings, and... Within a short period of time, I'd got a little apartment. I got a job. I got my first little car. I got back into society. I opened a little practice, psychology practice in, in Manchester. And and uh, 14 years ago, I got a, a chance to come over to uh, Dallas, Texas, to do a little bit of work for two weeks uh, on uh, addiction. And the moment I stepped off the plane at DFW, Dallas Airport, I knew I was going to never go back home again. Wow. And I never did. Yeah. So 13 years, did you say, you've been in Texas? It'd be 14 years in November. 14 years. When when, yeah. when do you eventually end up with a southern drawl instead of the uh, British accent? Well, I'm fixing. Oh, there you go. I can say I can say all y'all. I can say all y'all. That's about, That's about as far as I go. And that, biscuits and gravy. That's awesome. So you end up in Texas... Uh, you said you, you had kind of some work through the psychology work you had been doing? Yes, I come over and work with a church for two weeks okay. with their youth ministry, educating them about crack cocaine and the dangers of. Um, and within a short period of time, I decided I wasn't going home, but then I decided I want to do something like nobody's ever done before yeah. uh, in my life. I want to come over here. I want to be on national TV. I want to own a million-dollar company. I want to save thousands and thousands of lives and I want to leave a legacy. And 14 years on, every single one of them things have happened. Yeah. The alcoholic brain. The alcoholic brain made it happen. I've worked with over five and a half thousand people in the last 20 odd years. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> we'll continue. I have five practices around the world. I uh, My TV program goes out to 18 million people. My book sells really well. My book's called, funny enough, the last thing my daughter said to me, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And two years ago, after 20 odd years uh, of not seeing my daughter, I got a Facebook message from my daughter and it read, Dad, I want to see you. And that's all she wrote. I was, I framed that, I framed that, that uh, Facebook message. And within 24 hours, I was on a red eye going back to Manchester and I, me and my wife and I met her and we cried. And then she said, I, w- I want to show you something. And she took me inside her apartment. And she handed me my nine-month-old granddaughter. Oh, my goodness. That is incredible. How long ago did that happen? Two years ago. Two, Two years, years ago. And you hadn't seen your daughter in <clears throat> how many years? 24 years. Wow. Oh, my God. And I, knew, I knew right there and then when that happened that my life was complete. Yeah. And that I'd got everything back right. that I'd lost and then more. Yeah. So American's been really good to me. America's been amazing to me. You uh, you had a second daughter as well? I did. Uh, she's not back in my life yet. Okay. But uh, we're working on it. Yeah. Awesome. And you stay in touch now for the past couple of years with your daughter that reached out to you? 
not only do we stay in touch every single day, but two months after we got in contact with each other, she wanted to be a drug and alcohol counsellor. So I paid for her to go back to college. And three weeks ago, she graduated. Oh, with my goodness. A diploma in drug and alcohol counselling. So as of the 1st of November, she will be a online employee of Rob Kelly Recovery Group. That is fantastic. Wow. Full circle. Yeah, full circle. That is so cool. So how long were you in Texas before you started the Rob Kelly Recovery Group? About a year, I think I was in and decided that once again, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, so now you've had, you've had the recovery group going? About 13 years, 12, 12 years or something. Okay, fantastic. And how long have you been sober? Uh, I never disclosed that. And the only reason why I don't is because I'm a great believer that if you've got a day of sobriety, you can be an influence on someone who's still suffering. You see, when I went in the AA rooms and NA rooms, and uh, I wanted help, and I heard these guys with 20 years sobriety. I couldn't relate to that, Yeah, you know? And when I heard this guy said he had one day, I'm like, oh, I can relate to him. So I, I say to people, you don't really need to know that. You just need to listen to me and look into my eyes to realize that I've got what you want. Yeah. And it makes no difference how long we've all been sober. If you've got a day, you know, you're on your way. You're really on your way. Right. But it's been a few days. Let's say it's been a few days. How's that? That sounds good. A few long days. Yes. Um, and you still deal with some mental health challenges of your own? I still get depression. I still suffer from depression. Probably about once a month. I can't get out of bed because I'm so depressed. But, uh, you know, today I put it down to one of those days. And, yeah. and me and my wife, got it, we've got it sorted now. Because when I, when I wake up in the morning and I say to her, it's going to be one of those days, she marches into the kitchen. She gets the biggest bowl of ice cream she can get. She gets a big tub of lemonade. She comes in. She gives me remote control. She says, stay in bed, eat what you want, and call me if you need me. And I put it down to one of those days. She cancels all my patients. And everybody knows that it's an off day. And it's okay to have them off days. Yeah. And I think when we do that, you know, we do have one of them down days because my daughter suffers from this as well, is we call it out. We call it for what it is. Don't battle through, guys. Yeah. If you're having a bad day, communication and dialogue with other people are paramount to getting through that day. But call it, you know. I mean, then bad days are going to happen. And I think, At the beginning, they were more often, more often than not. But nowadays, they're not as often as they used to be. Yeah, and I think to, to be a leader, you're modeling for for your staff and your patients too, like, I need a day off, and, and this is why, and this happens. I think yeah, we, awesome. we have a couple of policies at work, and that is if you come in with a frown on your face, I'll send you one with no pay. If you come in tired one day, I'll send you one with pay. And every Friday is called Self-Care Friday. Everybody gets their hair done, their nails done, whatever they want that day. We, 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 the, the, group, the company will pay for it because we believe that you know these mental health days, very important to each and every one of us. You yeah. need to take time for yourself. But what we do when we're suffering from depression is we battle through. You see, I used to do that. I used to get a little cold and battle through and battle through and end up with pneumonia. But what I do today, I have a little cold and I recognize it's a cold. And I take care of myself and I take a day off work and I fill myself full of vitamins and I feel well for the next day and I don't infect anybody. Right. You see, it's, it's a total change of mind. The way I think today is totally different. Well, that's awesome. And I, I think we need more employers and leaders who work from that mind frame and model in that way. See, I, I used to go to bed on a Sunday night years and years ago um, and, and think to myself, oh, my God, it's work tomorrow. And have that feeling on a Sunday night of, oh, God, I wanted to create a company 
where people went to bed on a Sunday night and God, wow, I can't wait to wake up tomorrow to get into work. And that's what we've created. We've created a company where people can't wait to get into work Monday morning and don't particularly like leaving on a Friday night. Yeah. Even though we we finish at two at two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, all my staff only work uh, six hours a day, get paid full time wage. But um, yeah, I, I look after my staff because they look after me. That is so awesome. That's how every company should be. So you said you had more than one office. We do. We have we have San Antonio. We have Dallas. We have Manchester, United Kingdom. We have Zurich, and we have Mal- uh, Mallorca in Spain. My goodness. And can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the philosophy of the Rob Kelly Recovery Group and, and how it works? Yeah, it's it's mainly an online program. We do telehealth, been doing it for eight years now. We're not an overnight telehealth company like everybody you see now from COVID. We've been doing it for eight years. Uh, you spend one hour a day with us, five days with me, two days with my psychotherapist, and we change your thought patterns. Uh, we use neuroscience. We use neuroplasticity. And uh, we change the way you think. We're a great believer that alcohol, drugs, depression is all part of the, the symptom. The disease centers in our mind. If we can change the way we think, then we can change the way we drink. And, and we can change a lot of other things as well. You see, the human mind is, is absolutely an amazing organ. We can achieve anything we want to achieve. It's all a matter of if I visualize it in my head, I can hold it in my hand. And quantum physics tells us this as well. So in quantum physics, as I can be, let's say a basketball court, for instance, I can be 25 places at one time. The same absolute second, I can be 25 places. It shows me on the board in quantum physics. Where do I want to be? I want to be over near the goal. So when I get the ball, I'm going to slot it in the net. I'm going to be the hero of the game. Can you visualize it? Yeah, I can. Well, how do you do it? I walk over and I take that position. I don't interview, I don't beg for it, I don't ask for it, I can see it. I walk over and take it. And once you start thinking like that, amazing things start to happen. You see, we never know how powerful we really are. You see, I, I picked a photograph up some years ago, and it was me and a friend, and it was about 20 years ago. And I said, have you seen this, John? He was like, oh, my God, yes. God, they, those were the days, Rob. And I looked at it and God, God, we look really good. We were thinner. We were healthier. Those were the days. But it got me thinking. What if today's one of those days and we don't even know it? You see, we didn't know it then. Yeah. So what if today's one of those days? What if 10 years time we're going to look back and go, oh, my God, do you remember that? So let's make today one of those days. Let's appreciate today knowing quite well that this right now today is all we've really got. Yeah. So why not live as if it's our last day? Why not do everything? Smile at everybody. Lift somebody up. Kind word. Compliment three people every day. That's what I do. What can I bring to the table today? It's not about poor me, me, me today. It's empowered people, empower people, period. And if you don't walk away from me feeling empowered, you're walking away with a smile on your face. You see, I'm the guy that's in a position now to buy people stuff, to give them the time, to, to, to hype them up. You know, everybody knows me where I live. If you're short on money, I'll give you some. If you need an interview or a new suit for a job, I'll buy you it. If you want a car, little car, I'll buy you it. You know, I, I want to give back so much. And I know that once we start thinking this, it's very contagious. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, it's like there's 10, pe- stick 10 people in a room walking with a frown on your face. Most people are going to frown back. Same people, 20 minutes later, walking with a smile on your face. Most people are going to smile back. Right. And that's what it's all about today. What can I do for you? That is what funny. Can I, do that you? I have a shirt that says smile and people will smile back. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That is so cool. That is fantastic. You know, the 
the way you talked about teaching people how to think and change their thoughts makes me think of CBT. Would you say most of your talk therapy is revolved around the the model of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? CBT and NLP, neuro linguistic programming, is what we use. Gotcha. And 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 they both are very powerful tools. I also I, I'm I'm a double PhD, so I have a PhD in psychology, and I have a PhD in behavioral science. So I'm also looking at your body reactions. I'm looking at, you know, we believe that you can trace through your body when a relapse is coming because alcohol will never come to me on a Monday and go, hey, Rob, let's have a drink today. It never does that. It's a week or even a month before when my actions start to change and I start to get irritable and my body language changes. We catch it there. That's why we talk about permanent recovery and 97% success rate we have. Everyone else has about three or 4%. We're the only company in the world that will offer you a money back guarantee. The wow. only people in the world, if you relapse yeah. and don't follow our program, we're, we're, we're good at that. We put your money where your mouth is, is what my dad told me. That's what I'm going to do. That's you know, awesome. we, we have a buy into this. We, we have a, a responsibility, yeah. a real responsibility to our patients of saying, hey, if you trust us with your life, we'll show you what we can do. And not only will we offer a money back guarantee, but for the rest of your life, once a month, you get 30 minutes via Zoom with me free for the rest of your life to check in because I want to see how good you're doing. It's my commitment to you for life. And that's the difference between us and other people out there is this isn't a job. This is a passion. I have something that's very contagious and it's a hundred percent guaranteed. That's fantastic. So if people want to uh, reach out to you and learn more about you, what's the best way they can find out? A couple of ways. Jump on the internet, Dr. Rob Kelly, two B's, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y. Stick into Google. Uh, if you want to go direct, robkelly.com, two Bs. We'll take you to the website. And uh, if you're bored one day, just go into Amazon, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, or Dr. Rob Kelly will get you to the book, buy the book. All the proceeds, not the profits, all the proceeds go back into communities around the world of one parent families who has children and they're in recovery and they're trying to get a new life. All the proceeds. We give $250,000 last year back to one parent families in recovery. We bought people toys for the kids. We bought little cars for them to get to school. You know, this is what we do. Uh, and also, I want to say to your listeners, and I've just started doing this, just for the listeners here, so please don't pass it on to anyone else. If you're suffering from depression, if you're feeling you're not good enough, first of all, if you don't feel you're good enough and you don't feel you're worthy, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that there and right. it's just absolute BS. So if you're feeling down, if you're feeling depressed, if you think you've got a drink problem, if you think you've got a drug problem, if you just want someone to call up and talk to, call me. It's not going to cost you a dime. Here's my personal cell phone number, 214-600-0210. I'll guarantee you two things, guys, if you call. First of all, I'll guarantee you a 15-minute pep talk that will change your life. And secondly, if you need professional help, I will either help you or I'll redirect you to somebody who can help you. That's my personal guarantee to you guys. Don't think. You jump on the internet, you'll see all sorts of stuff about me. I'm not as famous as they make me out to be. I'm just the guy in the street that wants to help people. So don't think you can't call the famous Dr. Rob Kelly. Of course you can. You call me. We'll have 15 minutes together. I'll change your life. Wow, that is fantastic. What an offer. Well, Dr. Kelly, so 
you know, I think you just answered. One of the ways I typically end the show is by asking if somebody out there is struggling. So if somebody's grabbing a bottle or they're dealing with depression, what's the, the one most important piece of advice that you would give them? Dialogue. Speak to somebody. Yeah. You know, call us up in confidence. If you're a girl and you want to speak to somebody, but you don't particularly want to speak to a man, call me up anyway. I'll pass you on to my wife. Yeah. She's not, she has a brother that killed himself over alcoholism, shot himself in the head. You know, we've all gone through trauma. We don't need to suffer alone. This isn't, there's no catch here, by the way, guys. There's no catch at all. Call us. We just want to be of service. I mean, I'm nearly 60 now, Al. You know, I've been giving back for so long that this is what I do. Yeah. You see, you see all the TV and all the books and all the fame and everything else that I've got, it pays the bills and it keeps my wife happy. What I do is I speak to the guys in the trenches. I speak to the guys with depression. I speak to the guys that just want a little tiny bit of a lift up to get on with the life. And the, how you pay me is by being successful in what I tell you to do. Yeah. Because if I can do it, anybody can do it. But it's important that you talk to somebody. Do not keep it to yourself. And parents... Parents, if you're listening, you think that your son or daughter in the teens, it might be going through something. Have a look in the room when they're out. Don't mess around with this. Don't call the privacy. No, don't play that card. I'd rather you find your son with a half a bottle of vodka under his bed, knowing he has a problem, than turn a blind eye and he may end up like me on the streets because he's gone too far. But again, call us. We'll give you some great advice as parents. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and go with your gut, I think, even. You know, if you think something's going on with your kid, then question it, investigate it, check into it. It's um, very, very rare that your gut's wrong, by the way. Everyone yeah. thinks I've got feelings like something that just happens. goes back to the tribal days where somebody in the tribe would get this gut feeling that danger was near or something wasn't right. Nine out of ten times, they were right. They'd wake the rest of the tribe up and they'd be ready for a fight or they'd run. It's a fight or flight thing. Yeah. If you have a gut feeling, act on it. It's yeah. a real sense that you need to take. It's like a seventh sense we had. Yeah, it really is. And they, they talk about the gut-brain connection a lot. Yes. And, and that yes. could be a piece of it. Well, Dr. Kelly, I, I just want to thank you so much. You have put so much good out into the world. You have had some terrible tragedies that you've worked through yourself. And it's incredible to see how successful you've been, how you've been able to turn things around, and just how much you give back and obviously from the, the kindness of your heart and wanting to put good out into the world. So thank you so much. And then I finally, I also want to just thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. Always, always. As soon as I have, I have a girl called Courtney D. She's my media girl. And uh, it's funny because she, she calls me up sometimes. Uh, what happens is she gets some money. She calls them through to, to Janet uh, or Kate and, and they will up. But she called me and said, you need to get on this, this show. I'm like, well, you know, what kind of five months out with, with me doing any? You need to get on this show. You need to look up Al Levin. You need to see the stuff he's doing. And I'm like, okay. So I looked it up. I'll call her straight back and said, get me on as soon as you can. So it's been a pleasure. <laughs> hey, and I want to thank you, Al, because the depression files are very important. The people listening to you, and you don't know, believe me, you don't know how many people you are helping. You don't know how powerful you are and how people look up to you. And I want to thank you for all the people out there who can't, personally talk to you because i know there are thousands i want to thank you for you taking your time and putting it out there things that nobody want to talk about things that guys don't talk about you're out there talking about that and i admire you al and i want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing what you do uh, thank you so much i really really appreciate that well dr kelly it has been my pleasure thank you once again and uh, make sure you stay healthy 
Yes, sir. You too. And we'll talk again, no doubt. Great. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.